Spring Framework is an application framework for Java and JVM languages. Spring was originally built around dependency injection, but it grew to be an entire ecosystem of tools and plugins for Java developers. Spring was originally released 15 years ago, and since then a lot has changed around application development. For example, many engineers today deploy their applications to the cloud in microservices architectures. The expectation around frameworks has also changed, with the rise of Django, Ruby on Rails, and Node.js since Spring's rise. Spring Boot takes an opinionated view of building production-ready Spring applications. By taking this opinionated view, Spring Boot gets engineers up and running faster than the traditional Spring framework. Josh Long is a Spring developer advocate at Pivotal, and he joins the show to discuss Spring Boot and the history of the Spring framework. Software Engineering Daily is having our third meetup, Wednesday, May 3rd at Galvanize in San Francisco. The theme of this meetup is going to be fraud and risk in software, and we're going to have some great food, some engaging speakers, and a friendly intellectual atmosphere. To find out more, you can go to softwareengineeringdaily.com meetup. We would love to see you there. We'd also love to get your feedback on Software Engineering Daily. You can fill out the listener survey available on softwareengineeringdaily.com slash survey. It would be really helpful to us. And let's get on with this episode. Josh Long is a Spring Developer Advocate at Pivotal. Josh, welcome to Software Engineering Daily. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. Let's start off by talking about the Spring Framework. For people who have no idea what Spring is, what is the Spring Framework? Ah, so the Spring Framework originated uh, in 2002, I guess. It's kind of one of the earliest incarnations people might know about it. And it, and it serves the goal of helping people write code uh, without worrying too much about the, component, the middleware uh, with which that code is interacting, right? And it did that by letting people use uh, dependency injection, which is a, it's a fancy way of saying that you write code to interfaces as opposed to um and, and then because you have interfaces you can plug in implementations you can swap out implementations right so you write code against a data source as opposed to writing code that looks up looks up a data source inside of jndi that kind of thing that indirection makes it possible for spring to to do all sorts of cool stuff for you because now that you've got this data source or any other sort of collaborating object you know you can dynamically subclass the type that you're you've provided or you've, that you're collaborating with and uh you can do aspect-oriented programming. You can provide references to, you know, to transaction management. You can, you can rather you can interpose transaction management. That kind of stuff, all sort of transparent to the component that's relying upon this dependency. So we call that dependency injection. Now that's what Spring started off as, right? But it turns out when you write, when you encourage people to write, write code that's real clean and sort of object-oriented and doesn't have all these tight couplings to dependencies, then you can you promote unit testing. You promote ease of evolution. You make it easy to move your code from one environment to another, so you get portability, right? That was, that's sort of the original, I think, the motivations for people moving to Spring more than 15 years ago. Since then, it's become a whole ecosystem, and we can talk about that if you want, but I'm not sure if that's your question. No, we'll get there. Okay. So this notion of dependency injection, where you can specify a data source, and you have a looser coupling to what the actual end data source is, whether it's MySQL or Postgres or Cassandra, you have some intermediate middleware that is taking care of translating the the format of the database 
to the format of the framework, the in-memory framework, the Java program that's mm. running. Is is not that so accurate? Much. No, so I'm sorry. That's more like a. That's what you're talking about is more of a framework, I guess. Uh, well, no, I suppose you're talking about an adapter. What we what we are talking about when I'm talking about a data source, I mean, suppose you have specifically a pointer to a javax.sql.data source, right? And uh, what Spring makes it easy to do is to work with a, let's say, in an, you know, in your prototype case, you want to you want to work with something like a H2, right? An in-memory embedded but still SQL database that complies with java.sql.data source, you know, the contract. Tomorrow, you may, you know, and again, when I say tomorrow, let's, let's imagine we're in the hypothetical situation 15 years ago. Tomorrow, I may decide I want to move that application that is using my little in-memory database, and I want to point it to, to Oracle, which is bound into a JNDI context. They're both a java.sql.data source. This is not about isolating, this is not about abstracting away unnecessarily the fact that you're using a SQL database versus a Cassandra versus a MongoDB. This is about locational decoupling, right? The the reference to the thing I'm using, it's still a SQL data source. It's just that I, in my code, don't have an explicit requirement that that data source be the production instance that we've got in production. I can actually swap out a, a you know a mock in my test. I can use a in-memory one in my local development environment, uh, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. At a higher level, so, there's other things that allow you to talk to other data sources like Mongo and Cassandra, but again, that's an ecosystem discussion. So when back when I was a programmer, all of the jobs that I had were Java programs that involved Spring, and I never understood Spring. I could never understand it, and literally all of my software engineering work was in this environment. What are some of the aspects of Spring that people have historically disliked or not understood? Well, so, hmm, good question. The first thing is to To understand that what I just described, this idea of dependency injection, is the least you know significant or least relevant part of it. So if you're using Spring just for dependency injection, you're missing out, right? What has happened is people have built frameworks on top of Spring, on top of that basic component model, this idea that you've got a single place where your objects get wired together and uh, they are free to work and to function without any coupling to the other components, these collaborating objects. So we have technology that serve all sorts of use cases, verticals, if you will. Like if you want to build a web app, there's MVC, there's Spring MVC. If you want to do batch processing, there's Spring Batch or integration. If you want to do microservices, there's Spring Cloud, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So that's the, the thing is that there's this whole ecosystem of technologies. The dependency injection is just sort of how you get there. And I think today in 2017, we just take for granted that, of course, that code is going to be written in such a way as to not be coupled to the uh, sort of specific reference. Like I'm not going to write code that is today coupled to the IP address for my production database, right? That makes no sense. I, I would externalize that configuration. I'd have a little bit of indirection there. Uh, so as to things that people don't like, I think, well, uh, I think perhaps one thing that a lot of people soured on eventually was uh, XML, right? So XML was the way that we helped you wire up the, the objects in your application pre... So remember, Spring originated, it's, it came from, you know, many years before Java 5. And so what we needed was some way to tell Spring here are the objects in my application. Here's how they're wired together, right? Here, here are their relationships. If Spring knows about that, that wiring, then it can do things, as I say, it can interpose itself in between you and your collaborator and provide services for those collaborating objects, right? So the only way we could sort of describe that relationship uh, in the beginning was to use XML. We didn't have the ability to annotate your code with Java annotations in, in Java 5. So a lot of people, when they think of Spring circa 2005, or circa 2004, they, they imagine that it's only XML, which is, it hasn't been true since 2006, but 
nonetheless, it, there are still some people who are, I think, suffering from that, that idea. Uh, the other thing that I think a lot of people struggle with, not a lot, but certainly enough that I'm going to mention it here, is that there is, as I say, a, a large ecosystem. So there's a lot of different things you could choose to use in the spring ecosystem. You know, maybe you've got a specific use case. You want to build a web application. Well, then, by golly, have a, use, a, use Spring MVC. If you're trying to do security, well, you can use Spring Security and you can layer that into other applications. If you want to do batch processing or, or integration or, you know, that kind of stuff, there's Spring Batch and Spring Innovation, respectively. If you want to do data access with all these different sort of uh, specialized data stores, you no know, SQL data stores, there's Spring Data, right? There's a, uh, you know, just a lot of different options. And if you're, an, uh, if you're a newcomer coming into the world of programming from, from university, for example, and you start to look at all these verticals and you think, okay, I've got to learn Spring and they all start with Spring. Where do I even begin? That can be, I, I have no doubt, a bit daunting. So the sort of the main complaint that we used to get is how do I get started? You know, and for that, we have Spring Boot, right? Spring Boot hopes to at least alleviate anything that, any kind of friction you know, associated with the actual getting an application to the point where you can write code that is business differentiating. But that still doesn't alleviate the requirement that you understand yeah, what you're trying to do, right? You're trying to do batch processing, you're trying to do integration, etc. What it does do is it gets rid of all the configuration, all the sort of, you know, boilerplate. So I think those are the two big things that people have historically had trouble with. Right. Now, there have been a lot of changes to application development since Spring oh. was the framework to rule them all. There have been new frameworks that have come up. There have been, the obviously, the move to the cloud has mm-hmm. occurred while Spring has been the predominant framework. And as those things have changed, Spring has made changes as well. And those changes are probably best epitomized by Spring Boot, which is the project that you mentioned. What is Spring Boot? So Spring Boot, at the simplest level, it is still Spring. It's, it's just, a, it's just a, an opinionated approach, an opinionated start on top of the Spring ecosystem and the and then by Spring ecosystem, I really do mean all the things that people use with Spring, not just Spring proper, not just the Spring projects, right? So, and the way we provide that opinion is by by providing something called auto configuration, which is this component model that works very much like what you would have done before. Remember, 15 years ago, you would have told Spring about your objects, and uh, it, it you know they would have all come together at runtime and they formed some sort of useful thing, right? There would have been a web framework or whatever, right? So they're still there. They're still that. There's still this. This idea of objects being contributed to the runtime, sort of final state of the application. But what's what's slightly different is that now we can make it so that those um, those objects are dynamic. They get contributed based on conditions that can be evaluated. So you can say, okay, well, if this class is on the class path, then activate this component. You know, create this object and contribute it to the object graph. Wire it into the you know collective thing. Uh, we can say if this library is here, or if an object of this type already exists then don't bother, right? But otherwise, do bother. So, for example, if there's, a, if there's a library on the class path, but nobody's already explicitly defined a bean, then Spring Boot will create something for you. That dynamic programming model means that we can provide what we call starters. And these starters are just integrations with all these different ecosystem projects. I mean, if you want to do, do metrics, or if you want to do security, or integration, or batch, or, or um, NoSQL, if you want to do messaging, if you want to do SendGrid, if you want to use... Facebook or Twitter or LinkedIn or, you know, do sign in with or do or just act as a client to some sort of arbitrary OAuth uh, endpoint or if you want to talk to a, a StatsD sort of a time series database, right? I mean, whatever your use case, it's as simple as adding a uh, what we call a starter, which which in turn just brings in libraries, which in turn 
light up or activate these tests that I was telling you about, these aforementioned tests that say, okay, this library is here. If it's there, then go ahead and wire up the default useful sort of set of objects that we need to be able to talk to this thing. So if you have Spring Boot Starter RabbitMQ on the class path, that's a dependency, it's a Maven dependency, or, you know, you can use Gradle, right? It doesn't have to be Maven, but it's a dependency. If you add that onto the class path, that activates the, um, it contributes the auto configuration, the, the default configuration for RabbitMQ, which in turn points to the local RabbitMQ instance, so on. So it gives you a transaction, it gives you a RabbitMQ, you know, template that you can use to talk to it. It gives you a, a default connection factory pointing to RabbitMQ. So all that work that you would have done to use RabbitMQ is just done for you. But if you at any point want to override the defaults, it's just as simple as defining your own bean of the right type and that'll, you know, that'll be preferred, right? Right. So it makes sense to have an opinionated framework in a world where Spring has become a sprawling landscape and marketplace of different options you can choose from. And you covered some of those opinionated views. I think this is similar to, it's almost like a Ruby on Rails on top of the Spring ecosystem. Like Ruby on Rails is is opinionated and they don't Absolutely. apologize for the, for the opinionated position. Well, if I may. There's a, yes, Please. absolutely. We, we absolutely, the Java ecosystem in Spring, especially, we all owe a great debt to technologies like uh, Ruby and Rails, which, which contributes to this convention over configuration idea. We actually had a previous convention over configuration technology called Spring Roo, which is, a, which is I think, more closely related to, to uh, Ruby and Rails. It was code generation, right? So the result was that you had code that was generated for you. And the result, I think, you know, for the use cases that we had when Ruby and Rails came out, you know, uh, I think that that approach was certainly valid. But so you mentioned that it's uh, appropriate to have an opinionated approach of, on top of Spring. It's not just Spring. It's just the, the number of things that a developer in Java is supposed to do these days has just grown just so much more dramatically. So it is asking a lot to to have a Java developer be good at all these different things, to, to remember all the nuances of all these different things. Whereas before, you know, there's, a, there's only a couple things, only a few things you're likely going to do. You're going to build a web app, maybe babysit it, talk to a data set, database or whatever. One, what kind of database? Oh, some sort of SQL database. You know, that, that set of things that your average developer had to deal with has just grown. And I don't know that there is any kind of like common case application today. The way we do this is this is at runtime. So the, the object graph is not code generated. And uh, unlike Ruby and Rails, where people have historically sort of struggled to undo the assumptions in the, in the opinionated framework, you can override or you know undo the assumptions with Spring Boot. As I said before, it's as easy as providing you know configuring your own object of a certain type. We call that a bean in Spring. It's a it's just an object that you tell Spring about of a certain type. And if that type matches one of the default objects that Spring Boot tries to provide for you, then yours gets preferred, and the other one that Spring Boot would have provided for you gets uh, dropped. Its its creation is short circuited. So the result is that you can now undo. You can you know because it's a framework. It's it implements the open-close principle, right? It's open for extension, but closed for modification. Now, obviously, it's not closed for modification. It's open source, so you can you can you can do whatever you want to it. But the the idea is that you don't have to fork or recompile Spring itself to change its behavior. You just plug in objects of of a certain type, and they get plugged into the machine. You know, cogs in the machine. Let's imagine I am working in it. Let's let's take a giant enterprise, typical giant enterprise that has a big, you know, some just Spring applications internally. Uh, I think of like like Netflix or Alibaba. Sure, Netflix, Alibaba, eBay, Amazon, okay. all the companies I've worked at, and all and many of the companies that I've interviewed on this show. Yeah, 
So, like, let's say there's somebody at this organization that wants to stand up a new service, or they just want to do some sort of experiment, and they use Spring Boot, and they stand up their brand new service, their brand new app, and it gets to a scale where they want to integrate it with the pre-existing, some pre-existing Spring monolith. What's the pattern for integrating a Spring Boot app with a pre-existing Spring Enterprise monolith? Well said, depends. Do you mean it in the same running process, or do you mean as sort of a satellite service to which they communicate over network process? Like whatever is the typical. I mean, what what is the typical integration pattern you see? Ah, so I don't. It's really what we see is that we have a lot of people. We know a lot of organizations are coming at this from the world of the monolith. They have an existing application, uh, and for them, if they're if they're happy in that world, that's fine. They should absolutely. You know, there's no reason to. Uh, like for example, if you if you have a small team and you're for people and you've just got this application that's served you well for 10 years or whatever and, and uh, it's sort of chugging along it doesn't it's not going to ever need more than a few developers and it's maybe it's even on maintenance mode or whatever then then maybe it's simple enough to just move your existing application and move it to the world of spring boot and keep it a monolith right where we what we care about at pivotal is is agility you know and and i don't mean sort of i'm not i'm not i'm not trying to speak specifically to little a uh, agile yeah, a little agile. Thank you. Right. Uh, yeah, exactly. What we care about is that we care about getting results to production. So if you've got an application and you're able to update it as fast as the business needs, then maybe this, this newfangled microservices architecture isn't for you. And maybe it, it's it's simple enough to move your old application to, to just move it to Spring Boot. And in that case, it's simple enough because your old application is a Spring application and your Spring Boot application is a Spring application. So what I like to do, and this is what I tell all the people I talk to, uh, Add the at Spring Boot application annotation to your code base. You know, bring in the right libraries, set up your Maven build accordingly. Or if you if you want to short step shortcut that step, you can go to start.spring.io and code generate just the preliminary Maven build and the uh, directory structure, and then you can, you can use that as a queue. But anyway, however you get the, that that build set up, add Spring Boot application the annotation to your to your existing Spring application somewhere, and then start it up and start. You know, once it's working, start removing code. Find out the components that Spring Boot provides defaults for, and then remove the code that you've already written. And as often as not, it gets to the point where you have just your business logic, your your particular components, the, uh, you know, your servlets and, sorry, your, your uh, servlet components, maybe your, you know, MVC application controllers or your uh, services or your you know, repositories or whatever, and nothing else, right? Spring Boot should, hopefully, if we've done our job right, provide default auto configurations for the very large majority of the infrastructure code that you may have had to configure before. I like to do this when I have some music, maybe get some alcohol, you know, spend, take the night off. It's a good night, you know. And, uh, and the next thing you know, you've got a Spring Boot application and, like, half the code, you know, which is, or, well, I don't know how small your application would have to be to, to remove half the code. But you're going to have very little sort of cognitive overhead. What, what is left should be just your business logic, the things that you yeah. care about. Well, what's appealing about Spring Boot, or one of the things that's appealing, is it has these developer ergonomics built into it that... You don't have with the core spring or the old, the old world spring, you know, the things that send shutters down my spine, like the XML configuration, and you know it, it looks at Groovy as the desirable language that we should be building our apps around. Can you talk about some of the developer ergonomics that are built into Spring Boot and why you made those decisions around them? Sure. So, and by the way, when you say you, I, I, I expect you mean the Spring team, of which I'm just one tiny, almost yes, insignificant that's right. member. That's right. Yeah, and that that team, by the way, is just they're at spring.io forward slash team. They're innumerable and they're awesome. So I am just the loudest clown on the team. 
so yeah, one of the some of the things that motivated us in building Spring Boot, developer ergonomics. I like that. I'm gonna. Do you mind if I borrow that? Please do. <laughs> the, uh, the the developer ergonomics were motivated by, as you know, uh, this sort of paradigm shift, this move to the cloud, right, and this need to maximize productivity and and uh, to reduce the cognitive load. So there's a lot of things that we support in the framework itself, right? We've seen. Uh, and by the way, we're not the first. Uh, let's be very clear. We're not the first in a lot of cases to support these things. It's just that we integrated them because they're good ideas, and we're very we try to come by it very honestly. So, for example, one one use case that has seemed or seemed rather uh, sort of prolific was that people wanted to re- remove the possibility of drift. Right? They wanted to keep. They wanted to certify that their code that worked on their machine is going to be the same thing that works in production, and so they wanted to remove the drift. And a lot of organizations, especially the high performing organizations would take their applications and and they'd deploy it to something like a Tomcat or Apache Tomcat or a, a Jetty or whatever. And they keep that application server binary, the distribution itself, in the code base, right? So the application server configuration lives with the code. It evolved with the code. It moved through development, Q&A, staging, you know, and it went through the continuous integration environment, etc., all in one sort of part and parcel thing. And that tells us that a lot of developers want to guarantee that if they made it, if it works in CI, then it will work in production, right? They, they don't want drift. They don't want to have to take their binary and de- to deploy it to some other thing that is potentially running other things on it that, it has, uh, that hasn't been updated to the same releases and, and, and patches and so on. So they've uh, removed that. And that tells us that a lot of people treat these things as the same thing, even though the traditional deployment models would have you keep them as two separate things, one developed by, by developers and one managed by operations, right? Now, of course, we've got DevOps, so we, you know, there's that unification, this idea that both sides of the team are working on the same thing. So we, we, we see that manifest in terms of embedded application servers, right? embedded containers. So uh, embedded Apache Tomcat, embedded Jetty, embedded uh, Undertow, which is, for those of you who haven't heard about it, it's uh, this amazing um, embedded serverless container from the folks at, uh, at Red Hat working on, on the JBoss application server, or Wildfly, right? Now it is. And so you can support all, those are all supported by default out of the box. Of course, you can still deploy to a traditional servlet container environment if you like, but you know, by default, you get a public static void main application. We also s- sought to really bake in sort of the best of breed patterns, right? Patterns around building applications that are destined for the cloud. And um, I think the, the folks at Heroku did an amazing job with the 12 the factor manifesto from 2008, 2009, right? A lot of great ideas in there. One that features prominently is this idea that configuration that changes from one environment to another, things that should be different in each environment, like passwords and locators and that kind of stuff, this configuration should live external to the application itself, in, you know, outside of the binary, so you don't have to recompile. So Spring Boot supports that kind of externalized configuration. It's a first-class thing, right? What else? We've seen that a lot of people are doing you know, this, this idea of having a, uh, an application with a server-side generated web application all in the same binary as the, uh, the business logic itself, that isn't really as common today, right? I think you'll agree there's probably, it's far more likely you're going to be talking to a REST service, you know? So we've prioritized making REST and building services as opposed to building, let's say, JSP or JSF applications, mm. a first-class citizen, right? Mm. You can, you can do those things still, but it's not what we see a lot of developers doing. They're building client-side JavaScript, they're building Android or iPhone devices, you know, clients and so on, uh, talking to the services in the back end. Hmm. And that's, I think that's, that underpins a lot of what we're doing in the ecosystem at large, and that's just sort of come together in Spring Boot. Can you talk more about how Spring Boot interacts with Pivotal? So you work at Pivotal. Well, Pivotal yes, owns sir. 
Spring, or they are responsible for Spring. Or maybe just talk about the relationship between Pivotal and Spring. Ah, let's see. Spring, it was a open-sourced, I suppose you'd say. Rod Johnson released his first book, and that, that source code became pretty popular, and so it uh, took on a life, a life of its own as a, as a repository in SourceForge, and that code then became very ubiquitous, and they formed a company around it that was called SpringSource. That technology, that company, grew uh, to the point where in a recession economy, even in 2009, they were bought by VMware for $420 million, something like that. And then VMware managed the projects and the teams that work on it. And by the way, it, during that time, SpringSource had, you know, it's, it's, it became a, a hub for all sorts of really great technology. So the lead developers that work on a lot of the big Apache projects, not the least of which, of course, is Apache Tomcat, were employed by a company called Covalent, which SpringSource uh, bought, right? So we, we, to this day, have, have done just, and still do just a large majority of the commits to, to things like Apache Tomcat. And for a while there, uh, even HTTPD, right? At Apache HTTPD, that was the technology that we worked on. We eventually uh, acquired RabbitMQ. We acquired Gemstone, which is the company that makes the, the Gemfire data grid, right? Which is now called Apache Geode. So all these sort of great open source bits under one roof, and then, in 2013, EMC, which owns VMware and VMware, which managed the, um, the Spring projects, along with VMware, they all sort of saw fit to say, okay, let's, you know, there's this new direction. It's a different direction. It's worth walking that path. And so they created a company called Pivotal. And Pivotal is sort of the um, integration of, you know, building applications destined for the cloud. And we have a platform called Cloud Foundry, which is also open source. It's a... Uh, managed by the uh, Linux Foundation. The, these technologies are sort of all sort of at the intersection of, you know, building applications destined for this new environment, this new world. And Pivotal sponsors a lot of the developers that work on Spring, but by no means the only developers. Uh, there's a, it is a vibrant open source project on GitHub, so we have just a crazy amount of activity on the, uh, on the projects. And I think that's about it. I think that's what you're asking, right? Yeah. Yeah. So is there, when you talk about these different open source projects, so for example, the Gemfire database or Gemfire system, I, I did a show about Geode, Apache Geode, a very cool. interesting in-memory grid system for managing distributed systems or distributed objects. What's the general pattern for what projects Pivotal wants to take on? Aha. Well, so that's interesting. Uh, when you when you say projects that we want to take on, what do you, what, projects do you mean? that you projects that Pivotal wants to contribute to or support or build wow. service contractors on top of or, or uh, consultants, I guess. Like, what are the battles that you pick? Aha, very good. So, again, we're what underscores our, what we're doing is this idea of agility, right? Little a agility, and we see that as a continuum. We see that if you're just doing agile software development but the rest of the organization isn't doing that, you're not going to get anywhere, right? You're going to be bottlenecked down, downstream at some other point in the, in the workflow. And so you really need to sort of think about the sort of holistic picture. And, and so we have, an, we have a consultancy called Pivotal Labs, right? That they've, they were bought by EMC, and that became part of the Pivotal Adventure. They, they are a company that had been around for better, you know better part of two decades before Pivotal itself, and uh, so they're now part of the family. We have the Spring Source technologies. We have... Cloud Foundry, which came from VMware. So we have all these sort of technologies. And the unifying thing that we care about is 
helping organizations deliver software faster. And if you think about what that implies, it means you've got to be able to do, think about how to build software efficiently, right? So we, we help people learn how to build better software. They, we, they come into our offices, we do pair programming, we do continuous delivery, we teach them how to do continuous delivery. And we care about all the sort of the natural, the knock-on effects of moving to that approach. When you move to continuous delivery, uh, and you have a lot of different teams moving to continuous delivery, what you want to do is make it easy for these teams to deliver software independently of each other, right, at their own cadence. Well, of course, I think, at least I think, uh, and, and I, I think a lot of people would agree, the logical sort of conclusion of that is, to, is microservices. You decouple otherwise sort of independent things into separate processes. And of course, when you do that, now you have uh, things that you need to manage and run and scale and, and, and operationalize. And if the cost of operationalizing your, your services uh, is prohibitive, then you won't do it. And so you'll just be stuck in this monolith, which has even more gravity. So we, we need a platform. You need something to operationalize that and to manage it and so on. That's, what's, that's what Cloud Foundry does. When you move to microservices, suddenly your data workloads become different. Your use cases become different, right? There's communication across processes that has to happen. So you have microservices themselves. These are, you know, they have reliability patterns that they need to, to care for. So we have Spring Cloud and Spring Boot for that, right? Um, and uh, when you have services that need to talk to each other as well, there's messaging. So that's RabbitMQ. And of course, data. Again, we talked about Gemfire, but, um, which is now Apache Geode. The ability to process large amounts of data, especially the kind of data that's coming off from these different uh, services and to analyze them in, in a single place and then turn, those, turn that back into insight is important as well. So there's a continuum and we just see it moving. One of these, these things kind of, they sell themselves once you get to that step in the path, you know. Once you understand that you need microservices, then the next logical thing is you need something to, to manage the complexity implied by moving to a distributed system, which is where we think Spring and Spring Boot can be very useful. And of course, when you get to lots of different services, you need to operationalize them, you need Cloud Foundry and uh, the communication between these services and the integration of data, that's something you have to care about, perhaps using something like Apache Geode and, uh, and so on. Mm, okay, makes sense. Yeah, yeah, okay, so the big picture is coming together. Is there a standard model that you're seeing around how people are building those distributed systems with different spring microservices? Can you talk more about the the general picture for a microservices architecture that uses Spring as the main template for services? Sure. So this isn't our picture. Well, it's, you know, slowly it's starting to become our picture, but it's it's certainly we're not the first to originate these ideas. Let's Let's be very clear. We're very lucky right now in 2017 to be able to look back over the last 10 years, and we can see that countless organizations have attempted this migration, this journey, right? They've attempted this journey, some more successfully than others, to this idea of cloud native. We talk about that all the time, cloud native. And my book is called Cloud Native Java, right? But I think the most famous of these has to be companies like uh, like Amazon and, uh, and, and Netflix, right? So these patterns, these best practices, these guideposts on the, on the way, they've been out there. We've, a lot of people have seen them, and uh, a, lot of the, a lot of the good ideas that people have discovered or, or sort of realized would help them on the way are already well documented. So we sought to codify a lot of these these patterns to integrate best you know best of breed technologies from the ecosystem wherever possible and to make it easy to build applications that take advantage of all these things. So for example, a common use case in building microservices is service registration and discovery. So we have Spring Cloud, Spring Cloud has support for service registration and discovery. You can talk to Apache Zookeeper or HashiCorp's console or you can talk to to Netflix Eureka. I mean there's there's that for example Another pattern that becomes very useful when you move to this architecture is centralized configuration, reloadable, encryptable, uh, secure, 
centralized configuration, keys and values, things like password locators, that kind of stuff, auditable, right? So we have a, a config server, but we also support drawing configuration from things like uh, Zookeeper, right, and, and console. Another thing that becomes useful is uh, security. How do you secure a bunch of microservices and support things like single sign-on? Well, we have Spring Cloud Security, which brings in support for OAuth and acting as an OAuth client, and we have a, an OAuth authorization server that you can use as well. All of this is open source, of course. Where there are use cases for which we couldn't find a clear and obvious standout solution from the ecosystem, then and only then have we plugged the gap with our own code. But we're, what we're trying to do is to take these brilliant sort of technologies out there and, and make them as accessible as possible. And uh, where, where appropriate, provide an abstraction, right? A common interface. So the service registration and discovery use case is a, is a good one. We, we have a, an interface called the discovery client. If you can adapt your service registration and discovery vehicle, your mechanism into that interface, then you can use it in Spring Cloud consistently, you know, to do client-side load balancing, to do declarative REST clients, to do whatever, just by swapping in the, uh, swapping out the implementation. So there's a lot of these sort of patterns, right? They're all, and we bake them into Spring Cloud, and that's all, that's all building on top of Spring Boot. What's being worked on today in the Spring Boot project? Spring Boot, uh, right now, as we speak, uh, our engineers are hard at work on Spring Boot 2.0. And Spring Boot 2.0, we expect, will drop at the end of the year, hopefully in time for our big Spring 1 platform conference here in San Francisco at Moscone. And uh, what is sort of interesting about that release is that it'll be the first to build upon Spring 5, which in turn features a reactive runtime, right, based on our reactor project. So the sort of work that a lot of the industry players have been doing around reactive programming in the last, uh, I don't know, five years, six years, has become, you know, it's, beca- it's kind of reached a critical mass, and, and that work, a lot of the really, the key idea behind that is extracted out into, what is it, four interfaces that are now part of the Reactive Streams initiative, to which a uh, to which Pivotal, Red Hat, uh, Light Bend, Nay, TypeSafe, and what was the other one? Netflix are all party, right? And that, that Reactive Streams Initiative is something that underpins our particular reactor, our, our particular reactive uh, framework called Reactor, and then that in turn is what we're using to build a fully reactive web runtime that isn't necessarily based on the servlet engine, servlet API. So it's built on Netty. It's a it's a reactive runtime end to end. You can build REST services, build web applications, that kind of stuff. But for reactive programming to be useful, it really has to be end to end, right? What good is what good is having a reactive REST API if you're still bottlenecked at some sort of code in the um, in Spring Security that's using a thread local, right? You're defeating the gains by moving to that architecture if at some point you're doing blocking data access or doing blocking security and so on. So a lot of what we're doing on the Spring team this year is to, to make the rest of the Spring projects, including Spring Boot, play well with reactive, you know, this whole reactive initiative, right? And so Spring Boot 2.0 will be the sort of integration of all that, right? You'll have all these things are used to, but now it's there's the option to use the the fully reactive sort of experience to build upon that. Cool. All right, Josh. Well, I want to thank you for coming on Software Engineering Daily. It's been great talking to you about Spring and Spring Boot. Hey, it was my pleasure. Thanks very much for having me. I appreciate it. If you have there are people out there uh, who want to get started, start that Spring.io. I encourage you to give it a go. Great. All right. Well, thank you. <laughs> <laughs>